For those of you who are new to History Club and just finding us for the first time, uh, we actually started on Clubhouse in August of 2020. So we've been around for quite a while. And uh, we've done all kinds of uh, great conversations. We've talked about US-China relations. We've talked about activism and athletes. We've talked about history and crypto. And uh, we've also, uh, last year, did a full month on Black History Month and looking at a variety of different aspects of black history. And uh, this month, we are delighted to have uh, Steve Murray from uh, the Alabama Department of History and Archives, as well as Martha uh, Boyer, who is the creator and director of a really cool project called Stony the Road, the Re Stony the Road Betrod, excuse me. And uh, we're going to hear from both of them tonight. And we're going to talk about this intersection of photography and the civil rights movement. Also, throughout the course of the event, you will see above me that I'm going to post some links uh, that you can actually see some of the photographs that we'll be talking about tonight and some of the photograph collections that we'll be talking about tonight. And that is made possible by Flipboard, who is graciously sponsoring this conversation. And I will talk a little bit about that collaboration in a second and how wonderful it's been and how you can use Flipboard uh, for all kinds of cool educational and historical purposes. Uh, but let me start off just by welcoming our special guests and maybe asking Dr. Boyer to just introduce herself to you and let you know uh, a little bit about her and her work. So Martha, why don't you take a, a minute to just introduce yourself to our audience? Hello, everyone. My name is Martha Boyer, and I'm the developer of the project Stony the Road We Trod. And the idea behind this project was really to help local teachers better teach the history of the modern civil rights movement. Uh, this was after Alabama changed how it was going to teach U.S. history. Initially, we never got to the 20th century. We never got to the civil rights movement. But when we restructured how we would offer U.S. history, we were finally going to get an opportunity to teach that. And I knew that my teachers were woefully unprepared. As such, Stone of the Road We Trod was developed. Excellent. And I will put a link up to Stony the Road We Trod in a little bit so that people can check that out. But if you click on the link above me right now, you can actually see a link to Martha's work as well as some other collections and photographs that are relevant to the discussion tonight. Uh, so Martha, I'm really grateful that you're here. And uh, Steve, why don't you take a minute to introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. It's uh, great to be with you all this evening. My name is Steve Murray. I'm director at the Alabama Department of Archives and History. Uh, we're a state agency in Alabama state government, and you might guess from our name that we're the official repository for permanent records created by state government in Alabama. Uh, as a state archives, we're a little unusual in that we also acquire and preserve uh, privately sourced materials. So in, in some ways, we're, we're also like a special collections library that you might find typically at a university. Also within the mission of our agency is the state's history museum. So under one roof, we have collections that span government records, uh, private materials, and three-dimensional uh, objects that help us collectively to tell the story of the Alabama experience. It's an important aspect inside of a democracy and a civil society to have a, a schedule by which documents are preserved and then ultimately made accessible to citizens and scholars and, and researchers. And that actually segues very nicely into the conversation tonight because we're going to talk about photography and the photographic record of the civil rights movement, some of which we're familiar with. We've seen these pictures online or in textbooks for decades, 
But then there are other photographic collections that are just now for the first time being made accessible to people and that people are just now seeing for the first time since they were created 50 or 60 years ago. And so there's still a lot to see and a lot to learn about the civil rights movement, even as we have so much information already about it. So we'll get into all that in one minute, but I just need to take a moment here to recognize Flipboard and some members of Flipboard team who are here in the audience with us tonight. Uh, there's a link above me that talks about this amazing collaboration between Flipboard and History Club here on Clubhouse. Uh, I admit I had Flipboard a few years ago when I had an Android phone and then I switched to an iPhone and I, I didn't have Flipboard so I kind of lost track of it. But through the course of this collaboration, I've been incredibly impressed with the Flipboard platform. It is such a great venue for showcasing historical information. And indeed, there are tons of historians and, and history enthusiasts who are using Flipboard to share historical information and to curate collections. So when I got a chance to talk with them about doing a partnership, it just seemed like a natural collaboration to have these audio conversations in Clubhouse and then to supplement it with a Flipboard storyboard that shows you the actual pictures that we're talking about. So last month we did something on photography and the Holocaust. This month we're doing photography and the civil rights movement. Next month we'll do photography and the women's suffrage movement. So I really encourage you to check out Flipboard. I'm gonna put the link back up to my Flipboard so you'll see some of the photographic collections that we're talking about tonight. And I encourage you to go and, and dig more. And there are links to Martha's project there. There are links to the Alabama archives and the photographic collections that it holds. It's a really wonderful uh, cache of material. And so when I put the link back up, take a minute to check it out and look at some of these pictures as we're talking about it. I think it's gonna make the experience much more rich and exciting for everyone. And again, special thank you to Flipboard for its sponsorship of this event tonight. So um, let's get into the conversation and the subject matter at hand. Obviously it's Black History Month. It's a, a time that we're thinking about the civil rights movement, that we're seeing these images online everywhere. Uh, Martha, your project, which I'll put a link up to as well in a minute, focuses very heavily on images and photography and uses that as an entry point into the conversation about civil rights. When you just vary at a very like 30,000 foot level, when you think about civil rights movement, what role do you see photography playing in the movement itself? How important was photography to the civil rights movement? Photography was extremely important to the civil rights movement. Uh, before now, people could easily say, well, I didn't know, and when did that happen? But photography gave a face to the people, to the event. We got to see it, and there was no way it could be denied that this really and truly did happen. And then the amazing thing about it is that people all over the world got a chance to see what it was like to live a, as a second-class citizen in the land of plenty, and especially in the state of Alabama, especially in Birmingham a city at the time that was viewed as the most segregated city in America. The world got to see. And as a result, I think, you know, the, the feedback from the world, from people all over, just being aghast at what they saw. And to think that this happened on a regular basis to people living in Birmingham, Alabama, and across the state. So photography exposed it. You know, before now, things were kind of undercover. There may have been a small something in the newspaper or an article 
But once the photographs were shown, once people actually saw, then I think hearts and minds were touched and people all over started to stand up for what was right. Just as many, you know, were still very much against uh, moving forward as far as African-Americans, Black Americans, but many people stood up and they really and truly did actually, Jason, start to link arm in arm. People left their comfort zones, wherever that may have been, and they traveled to Alabama. They traveled to Birmingham. Those images brought the world to our doorstop. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is so interesting about this is that people may not know how strategic the movement was in the utilization of photography. And that's one thing that I've really come to appreciate the more research that I've done and the more I've looked into it. I talked about this in my Flipboard storyboard, how when the NAACP sort of launched this movement in 1953 that was aimed at uh, having an, you know, full emancipation 10 years later in 1963, they were very, very upfront and deliberate about the fact that public, public relations and documentation through imagery was going to be central to the movement's success. Um, how, do we, how should we think about that now in terms of that strategic calculation among the movement participants themselves to make sure that these events were documented and photographed? I think that was a brilliant move on the part of all of the organizers, definitely at the national level, but also locally. And having met Reverend Shuttlesworth, he said that whenever they were planning an event, they always would let the media know. The idea is that if the media is there, maybe that will quell some of the violence. Maybe people wouldn't be as, as, as violent or determined to stop them. But in many cases in Birmingham, that, that didn't stop anyone from doing anything, but it was extremely important. Another amazing example, not so much of photographs, but was what happened in Selma on Bloody Sunday. When ABC filmed the attack at the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and they finally got their film developed back in Montgomery at their ABC affiliate, but then flew the film to New York. And right there in the middle of Judgment at Nuremberg, they break in with shots from Selma earlier in the day. People were just stunned. They thought they were still watching Judgment at Nuremberg, what had happened. And then they realized, oh, my gosh, that, that happened today in Selma, Alabama. And so we, we can't in any way, you know, underplay the role of the media, the, the photography the film footage, it all did what the NAACP, what Reverend Shuttlesworth, what the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights thought it would do. It, it stirred the consciousness of the nation, and that was critical in terms of getting the word out and people to actually, you know, not just not to hear about it or whatever, but to see it. It changed everything. I hate to be cliche-ish, but we've always said a picture's worth, what, a thousand or 10,000 words. I think the movement proved it, and the strategy on the part of the leaders was critical to making that happen. Yeah, and, and I put in my Flipboard uh, storyboard, which I've linked up above, that even Dr. King himself wrote that these visual media were gigantic circling spotlights. I mean, it was very clear that the more this behavior and the more what was happening was exposed to the world, the more that sentiment turned in favor of the movement and Political leaders, elected officials, members of the media had no choice but to pay attention and to reflect on their own conscience about what they could do uh, to advance the goals of equality. Um, Steve, let me bring you in here because I feel like when it comes to 
specifically the role that photojournalists and journalists played, such as uh, photographers for the Associated Press or cameramen who were working for the evening news at the time. Of course, there was no cable television back then, no CNN, so it was, it was the broadcast networks. That played a huge role too, and those are actually some of the collections that you have in the Alabama State Archives. We do, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll add uh, to Martha's point, I, th I think understanding the function of imagery in the movement really helps us to understand the intentionality of the movement and to, to help students push, push, back, push beyond the, the myth that suddenly um, things started happening in 1954 and 55 that, that uh, jump-started you know, a spontaneous kind of, kind of, uh, of uh, momentum when, and when in fact there had been generations of work, decades of work undertaken and the strategies of, of bringing the media to these events and being sure that the public was going to be able to see what was happening was part of some hard uh, earned lessons by, by the leaders of the movement, but a, but a real sophistication that was part of uh, some really elaborate planning to, to help um, raise the, to prick the conscience of, of, of the American society. And so, as you said, the media are, are important parts of that. And we're very fortunate to have some incredible media collections at our institution. Uh, one that I, I, I think is unique in, in many ways is the uh, Jim Pepler Southern Courier photograph collection. The Southern Courier was a newspaper that was established actually in the wake of the movement events of 64 and 65. And there were Ivy League students who had been involved to come back to Alabama because they realized there was not, uh, there, were, there were no journalism outlets really serving the African-American community. And so they created a, a newspaper called the Southern Courier. It was, a, it was staffed by a combination of Northern uh, re, uh, recent graduates of, of universities and local members of the community serving mostly central Alabama, but some into uh, eastern Mississippi as well. And later in life, their chief photographer, a gentleman named Jim Pepler, donated uh, his negative collection. It's more than 11,000 images spanning uh, July of 65 to mid-1968. So it's really about three, three years of uh, work in, in the Deep South, photographing everything from voter education efforts in the wake of the, the 65 Voting Rights Act, helping people to understand who, who now had, um, through congressional action, finally secured the ability to register and exercise their vote. And so they had voter uh, education workshops, uh, but also it helps to understand, you know, another important lesson that, that I think is glossed over far too often in our, in our textbooks the movement didn't stop in 65 either. And, and just because uh, legislation was passed federally doesn't mean that a switch was flipped and everything suddenly became um, completely better. So there are ongoing economic protests and uh, picketing outside of businesses, encouraging them to make their employees, uh, the ranks of their employees look like the, their, their customers. So in other words, to be sure that they had integrated workforces there are, um, but also in this, in this photograph collection, just wonderful images documenting daily life of African-Americans from sports to music to uh, neighborhoods. And it's just a, a phenomenal collection that is uh, all digitized and available on our website. Uh, 
uh, gives just a beautiful view of community life, but also the determination of people to be sure that the hard-won victories in 64 and 65 were actually going to be realized. Yeah, and if people want to check out that collection, uh, again, the link above me is the Flipboard storyboard that I've made for the event tonight. And I actually do have a link to that Southern Courier photograph collection on my Flipboard. And you can see these pictures. And again, as you mentioned, these were negatives. So these were not visible to people for how many years until you guys put them up online? Yeah, he, he donated these to us in the late 2000s and we started uh, digitizing those pretty quickly and, and uh, started going online in 2013 and had it completely digitized within a few years. And Mr. Pepler, who is still living, uh, felt strongly as the creator of these images that he was that they also belonged to uh, the people uh, who were the subjects of these photographs. And he was very determined to put those in a, in a location where they would be made accessible and they would be put fully online. And his determination to be sure that these were gonna be accessible to everyone in the public actually helped to accelerate our, digit our digitization program generally at our institution. So he did a tremendous service to us in making this condition of his gift because it really allowed us to develop or prompted us to develop uh, capacity to do not just this collection, but much more. Yeah, and uh, I'm glad too that you mentioned this question about ordinary people who were involved in the movement, because I think one of the things I think about and write about in my book and other things is how on social media, certain types of images tend to get recirculated over and over and over again. And I think, especially during a month like Black History Month, you know, we'll see pictures of Dr. King, we'll see pictures of Rosa Parks, we'll see pictures of Malcolm X. Um, but the civil rights movement is so much more than just the handful of leaders um, who happen to wind up in a lot of photographs. And these other collections that document all of the students and all of the volunteers and all of the activists and all of the marchers from a wide variety of backgrounds and from other states who came to these locations, you know, this kind of gets at the three-dimensionality of the movement, it seems to me. So, Martha, let me come back to you on this point. Um, how do you, as an educator, sort of reconcile the fact that when we think about civil rights imagery, we maybe only think about a handful of iconic images and those get circulated online or in the media as sort of being representative of the movement and how that maybe elides or just keeps from us seeing the larger picture of all the other people who participated. One of the things I want to say, I'm a former classroom teacher and this particular year we were talking about civil rights and I asked the question, you know, my students, eighth graders, what are civil rights? And one of my students was just like a harlot stood in the seat for trying to answer. Oh, oh, I know. And then, so I called on him and he said, oh, that's for black people. And what I want us to understand is that civil rights are those rights that belong to all of us as members of a nation. And then the fact that Mr. Pepler took pictures of ordinary people who did extraordinary things is extremely important. Things that even today, just thinking about our talk tonight, things that black people had to be brave about. And I'm talking about being brave to go into a department store and ask to try on a pair of shoes, being brave uh, about trying to go to school. So capturing these images, 
these people, I think, who are the recipient of all of the hard work of all those who went before them, that what they did, that is critical. Reverend Shuttlesworth, uh, and again, I'm from Birmingham, so he was the leader of the movement here in Birmingham. But he always said that his movement was a movement of the masses, not the classes. And then the fact that Mr. Pepler realized that these ordinary people capturing them in their everyday lives, I think was a greater reflection of all the people who benefited, who even today, who are recipients of the legacy of Reverend Shuttlesworth, Dr. King, all of these wonderful people and people that some of us may not know of. I'm going to say Susie Jones, Mary Smith, Fred Jones, all of these people who decided, well, I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm not going to do, do, do this anymore. I'm not going through the back door. I'm not going to shop in that department store. All of those things that ordinary people did made the difference. And once again, capturing them, whether it's, this is going to sound silly, guys, but if you've never picked a bunch of collard greens, but if you got a picture of somebody, you know, preparing a meal and they're just getting the collard greens ready, that was a part of everyday life. Somebody working in their little farm at their home. But it's all of these people collectively, the masses, that made the difference. And I'm so glad that someone realized. Every time I find a, a old photo of something, I, I just wonder, wonder what inspired that person to take that picture. And I'm so very glad they did. So actually, this is a great opportunity because I suspect that many, there are about 300 people in this room, over a thousand people have come in and out already. I suspect that many of them don't actually know who Reverend Shuttlesworth was or is and uh, probably don't know much about him. You've mentioned him twice. Do you want to take a minute just to educate all of us on his story? I certainly do. Reverend Fred L. Shuttlesworth is my personal hero. I was preparing one day to do a talk on the Holocaust. We were going to host a workshop, and this was in my capacity as a curriculum supervisor for Jefferson County Schools. And as I started to prepare, I saw that there was a list that someone had put together, the six steps of Holocaust. And when I saw that list, I realized that when Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth came to Birmingham, the pastor Bethel Baptist Church, that we were at point six. I'm not trying to compare what happened to uh, black people with what happened to Jewish people in the Holocaust, but I could so clearly see, oh my gosh, we were right there. So this man was a minister who came up from Selma, Alabama to Birmingham and just trying to, you know, clean up the neighborhood around his church, found himself thrust into the position of a leader uh, of a city of 40,000 black people living in Birmingham, living far below, you know, the basic standards. People on jobs making 25 cents an hour where somebody else may have made 50 cents or a dollar. So we're talking 1954, guys, so don't think, don't freak out about it. But I want you to understand that when someone like that just steps up, so he leads the movement, he is moving forward in Birmingham. When the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, was outlawed in Alabama because Reverend Shuttlesworth, being the, the local chair, refused to give up his membership list, the, the organization was outlawed. So he starts a new organization to pick up the mantle and keep the, the, the freedom fight going, the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. This will be the organization that will lead the fight in Birmingham 
seven years before he ever invites Dr. King to Birmingham in 1963 to help him take things to the finish line. Our airport is named after him. Our city finally realized that this man did a world of good and that what he did changed not only Birmingham, the state, the nation, and inspired people around the world. Yeah, thank you for that. And again, you know, the way I talk about this in my book, the way that social media works, the way that our, our media works, sometimes we fixate on the big names, the names that we know, and these other stories just get lost to history. And it's just so valuable to learn about these other figures who played such pivotal roles, whether it be locally or regionally, because that was all part of the movement. It wasn't just one or two people making speeches on the mall in Washington. It was a broad swath of people in local contexts doing things on everyday level to help in this fight towards integration and, and ending of discrimination. Um, let me take a quick moment here because we're at the bottom of the hour just to reset the room real quick. As I said, we've had already about a thousand people come through, which is wonderful. We've got about 200 people in here now. Uh, we're talking about photography and the civil rights movement with Dr. Martha Boyer and Steve Murray. Uh, this is part of a collaboration that History Club is doing with Flipboard here on Clubhouse. We did an event last month about photography and the Holocaust. We're doing photography and the civil rights. This month and next month, we'll do photography and women's suffrage. So if these type of events are of interest to you, I encourage you to sign up for the History Club newsletter. I will put the link right above me after I am done speaking. Um, sign up for our newsletter so you'll get notified about these events. And you'll also learn more about this amazing partnership that we are doing with Flipboard. I have really fallen in love with the Flipboard platform. It's basically for me like curating a mini ex exhibition. Um, I've got my Flipboard up now on this topic that talks about the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, and then legacies. And I've got links to Martha's project, to collections that are in the Alabama State Archives, as well as lots of other photographs from the Smithsonian and the National Archives. So I encourage you to check out that story and also to check out Flipboard in general. What they're doing for creators is really, really cool. Um, so let's spin this forward a little bit, Steve. Um, talk a little bit about um, the Alabama Media Group collection that you guys now have as well, because we talked a little bit about what happened to these photographs after they were taken. And some of them, of course, became famous and iconicized and showed up in magazines all around the world. But others went into file drawers or into cabinets and perhaps didn't get seen for decades. And then as you and I talked about earlier, suddenly there becomes a need to put these photographs somewhere. And that's where places like the Alabama Department of Archives and History come in. That's right. And your listeners who may have worked in journalism in the pre-digital era uh, would know how uh, photojournalism used to work in, the, in, in an analog format where staff photographers would be sent out on assignments uh, and typically would take uh, a significant number of images, bring those back for examination by a photo editor. Uh, photo gets selected to run in the newspaper, but for every photograph that is eventually published in the newspaper, there are probably you know, 10 or 15 photographs that were on uh, that same roll of film 
that are never developed. The only person who's ever seen them is a photo editor, or maybe the photographer who took them, and they get uh, uh, the, the 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 film gets cut into uh, segmented into t by topics, put into a photo sleeve, and filed into these banks and banks of filing cabinets that newspapers kept. And that was the what they would call the, the newspaper morgue. It was their, their, their archives of old clippings files and photographic negatives. And what we've seen in the last 20 years as the field of journalism has undergone this really regrettable diminishment of capacity and size, and you know we talk a lot about what that means for our society and our ability to understand the world that's going on around us, um, they have been forced, due to the entire shift of the economics of journalism, to uh, downsize the organizations and also to reduce their physical footprints. And sometimes that means they wind up uh, reducing overhead costs to get out of large office buildings and the places where they stored these, uh, these negatives. And we were um, so fortunate to be able to work with a company called Alabama Media Group five years ago they had consolidated uh, several uh, newspapers in Alabama, including three of the four largest daily newspapers, the Birmingham News, Huntsville Times, and Mobile Press Register. Uh, so they had under one roof all of the photographic negatives for those newspapers going back to, from the mid 20th century, some even back into the 20s and 30s, all the way up until the transition to digital photography around, the, around 2000 or so and they were needing to find a new home for this material. They didn't have the resources to care for it, and we were able to uh, negotiate an agreement where, by which they very generously donated that content to the people of Alabama. And so we now have something that we estimate conservatively to be around three million images. It could be upwards of five million um, that we will be digitizing for probably decades to come. And it is a gold mine of images because like I said, it's not just the images that were eventually published in the newspaper, but also all the others that were taken by the photographers. And so we are gradually working through that collection. You can find it on our website as well. And we have been focusing on a couple of topics that are uh, those that are most frequently requested by our researchers, which happen to be um, civil rights, and if you know much about Southern culture, and specifically in Alabama, you might guess that the, the, the second most popular topic is um, athletics, specifically football. So there's lots of sports and, and lots of civil rights uh, photography contained in, that, in the material that we've been digitizing so far. It is, uh, it, it, anyone who has ever worked with digitization projects knows that creating an image, whether it's from a paper document or a photo negative, is actually the simplest and fastest part of the process. It's creating the metadata that goes with it that makes that information searchable so that by the time you have tens of thousands of images available in a database, you wanna be able to find what you're looking for. And the creation and proper management of that metadata is really where the, the more time-consuming and difficult work comes in. But we're chipping away at that gradually and we we know that there are other news organizations around the country that are facing those same kinds of difficult decisions about what to do with their historical content. And we, can, we just have to hope and uh, encourage them to seek out partners, uh, repositories and historical societies or universities that might be able to take on those kinds of collections. And there are some 
surveys yeah. underway to try to get a better handle on how many of those types of news collections might be available around the country. And I, I just want to reiterate this because you kind of casually just said it, but I mean, we're talking about three to five million photographs that have not been digitized yet that have not been seen by large swaths of the general public. And, and this to me is one of the most wondrous and exciting things about being a historian and being in this profession. It just, there are always more discoveries to be made. There is always more to learn. There are always more documents and records to see. And I think the point also here about this intersection between journalism and history, right? We have these legacy institutions from the 20th century who have collected this amazing cache of material and we need to make sure that we have repositories for that material. This is one of the things we talk about in History Club all the time. And I talk about my book as well. You know, these types of efforts require financial support. You can't save three to five million photographs and also catalog them and make them accessible to people online without funding. And so it's just so critical that our historical institutions are well-funded and supported so that this type of work and exploration is possible. Anyway, that's my TED talk and I will get off my soapbox now. Well, I'll, I'll say amen to that. And, 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 it's, so, and it's so important for uh, multiple reasons. I mean, these collections have uh, research value for scholars, there's genealogical value, one of the things that I'm most excited about is, is, is their educational value. And, and Martha's among, comes from a profession that is, has the exciting and challenging work of uh, helping students to develop the skills to, in, to, to interrogate imagery, you know, and to, to, to learn how to ask the right questions about who the creator was and who the, what, who the subjects were and what the purpose of the image was. And, um, we, when we talk about students today who, who process information visually so increasingly, it makes these materials all the more valuable, uh, I think, in the classroom. And so we love to see these things get out into the hands of teachers and into classrooms. So Martha, that's a great segue back to you. So talk a little bit about your project. I'll put the link back up, Stony the Road We Trod, and specifically how you integrate these photographs into the classroom and into learning for students and lifelong learners. The Stony Project uh, is designed for educators, and I guess we've been doing this now for about 20 years. I've had teachers from all the states, from five foreign countries, Russia, Pakistan, Kazakhstan, Colombia, all teachers who are looking at how to best teach the, the story of hope and perseverance that we find in the modern civil rights movement. And one of the things that the teachers are required to do is to produce some sort of a lesson plan or a curriculum that they will use when they go back to their schools. And this project, I want to say, is funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities, and it provides a stipend for teachers of $2,800. And the stipend is designed to help pay for, you know, costs associated with traveling to Birmingham. So this started out as a one-week workshop, but in the end, at the end of every workshop for about 15 years, when we're looking at the evaluations, teachers are always saying, we never ha we didn't have enough time. We wish we could have had more time to do this and that. So we bring in scholars who've written the best 
of the books, the documentaries, put together all, all kinds of information about this. So they're invited. The teachers start out in Birmingham, and then we spend an entire week on the road. We go to all the places that are memorialized by the civil rights movement, places like Selma, Montgomery, Tuskegee. And then we're back in Birmingham and our scholars actually come, uh, you know, to wherever we are. So we're talking about Birmingham, then I've got Glenn Eskew. This time I'm really excited to have Danielle McGuire come and also Peggy Wallace Kennedy, uh, Governor George Wallace's daughter. But I've also got Ruby Shuttlesworth, Vester, Reverend Shuttlesworth's daughter, and, you know, they, they speak one day after the other, and people are just fascinated to hear these women talk about their fathers, loved, revered, feared, hated, whatever. But it's an opportunity for teachers to work with their peers and to develop really concrete, sound information that regardless as to how their students learn, whether they are I'm used to use a methodical format, so whether they are visual learners, whether they're kinesthetic, whether they're the kind of you know student who always wants to know, well, what if I did this? How could I do that? So we're always looking for ways to find, you know, to, to, how, how do we get there? How do we ensure that our students walk away with the knowledge we want them to have about this amazing period of history? And I think bringing teachers to Alabama, traveling to these places that I've mentioned, and all along the way, we're meeting history makers like Joanne Bland in Selma. Oh, we're going to actually visit Dr. Richard Harris' house where the Freedom Riders took refuge. So it's really one of those involved, hands-on, meet the history makers at every site, go into places that the general public does not come. And we also, of course, go to the Alabama Department of Archives and History. We've actually met uh, Dr. Jean Theo Harris who's written about Rosa Parks there on several occasions. So it's an amazing opportunity to really grow deep, to learn as never before in the places where, you know, this history is made, whether it's the highways, the byways, however you, you know, we, we get there. And really making the point that when Dr. King gives out, you know, the call, you know, if you love freedom, if you love justice, come to Selma. Even today, it's hard to get there. And when people travel that road and they realize those people really wanted to come to Alabama, they really wanted people to gain the right to vote. We make history really and truly alive and real. I bring in people who live the era, Reverend Dr. Carolyn McKinstry, who was a survivor of the 16th Street Church bombing. So it's not just scholars, but it's scholars, history makers, foot soldiers, and then travel to these key sites of memory throughout Alabama. Yeah, it sounds amazing. I can't wait to participate one day. And um, but just and and real quick though, just to just to sort of tie it all in a knot. So specifically, if you could talk a little bit about how you get your students and teachers and participants to think about photography in this context, because obviously going to the sites and being in that three dimensional setting, you know, that has a lot of power and that can help visualize things. But then you add the layer of the photography and whether it's the, the photographs of the leaders or the photographs of the people on the ground, how does that complement or supplement or weave into what you do? I think it does all of that. Complement weave, weaves into it, does all of that. And then even allowing them to stand in, in places where some of these iconic photographs were taken 
and then creating photo journals, things that they can take back to their students as a part of an activity or a lesson uh, is critical. So in all, like I said, all the time, and as you pointed out, and especially Steve as well, just having the photographs, being able to look back, and I'm glad to hear you work for the Library of Congress because I use their resources all the time in terms of, you know, a analyzing a photograph. What do you see? What do, what do you think the, the author, why did they take this particular image? So we use all of that, the Library of Congress resources for analyzing whether it's a, a print document, whether it's a video, a photograph. So we use all of that. And from that, we're able to build, I think, some amazing uh, lesson plans and curriculum that uh, will tell the story in a way that their students will not forget. And being able to just see it and for teachers to say, that I was there, oh, I saw this photograph, I stood here on this bridge, this is where John Lewis stood, and I stood in that same place. So being able to do that, and a tactic that I learned from History Alive is how you can take a photograph, uh, if you, you know, it's projected, and just taking a poster, and then be able to hold that in front of the image, you know, from the, the camera, and you're able to make it large and real, and you, it's like bringing the people off off the film, right into the classroom, right into the setting. So we, we provide tactics like that, looking at instructional strategies that work, again, regardless of a preferred learning style. Yeah, that's awesome. And yes, uh, loyal History Club followers and listeners and Clubhouse friends will know that I worked at the Library of Congress for seven years. I speak glowingly about the library any chance I can. In fact, the very first History Club was about the Library of Congress. We spent two and a half hours on Clubhouse with about 17 people in the audience talking about the wonders of the Library of Congress. So it's a place near and dear to my heart. But I love this question about, you know, examining the photographs and being critical of them and not critical in a negative way, but just sort of bringing that analytical nature to the photograph. Because uh, that's what we as historians do. We have to analyze sources. We don't just take them at face value. For example, the photograph that is the cover photograph to my storyboard, which I've just put up here, this is a very famous photograph taken by a photojournalist. Many of us have probably seen it. The uh, teenager being attacked in this photograph, William Gadsden, he actually was not involved in any protests on this particular day. He had just gotten off of a bus and turned the corner and got grabbed by this police officer and attacked by this dog. And you don't necessarily know that just by looking at the photograph. So you have to dig deep. You have to do research. You have to ask questions of these photographs because while they do say 10,000 words, um, we have to make sure that they say the right 10,000 words and that we're being accurate to what the photograph is actually showing us. And one of the things I talk a lot about in History Club and in my book and in my newsletter is how it's so easy to take these photographs and manipulate them and put them into different settings where they start to mean different things. I agree exactly, especially with this photograph. And then having done research, as you said, and here actually reading his testimony, he talks about, I was not a part of the movement and what happened. And several of the adults, uh, other people there, they were just bystanders that the police decided to stick the dogs on. So actually hearing their story, uh, you know, just, just getting that, brings history alive. And you talked about photographs, even looking at them uh, in quadrants, you know, every little section, you know, what do you see, what's going on here, I think helps us to do that. And then once again, being able to find the information that really 
I think explains and goes deeper than what the eye can see. That that comes from the research, and we do a lot of that, as I pointed out at the at the Alabama Department of Archives and History, at the Rosa Parks Museum, and also at the downtown Birmingham Public Library. So our teachers have an opportunity to do exactly what you just said, Jason. Jason, I have a, a, a follow-up thought. Uh, yeah, please. About uh, interrogating images and understanding their their context, and some other, a couple of other examples that come to mind. One is that um, your your listeners probably know that you know the the, the massive resistance uh, to the civil rights movement included and in, in frequently uh, received leadership from state officials, and that was true not just in. Um, state governments, but all the way up to the FBI. There were surveillance of civil rights activists and a variety of types of records created to monitor their activities and then frequently used to create propaganda against the movement. And we have in our collection, for example, some uh, uh, photographs from George Wallace's gubernatorial files where you'll find occasionally photographs of particular individuals that were interspersed with his governor's papers uh, that we have. Uh, we may not know exactly why they chose to preserve that image or, or to create or preserve it at the time, but it came out of his governor's uh, records um, uh, that were created in the, in the 60s. But another, when we were uh, look, marking an anniversary of the 1965 Selma to Montgomery march, uh, we came across uh, two different sets of aerial photographs. And so these were done by, um, uh, in one case, a gentleman who was in the, in the army and another was uh, taken on behalf of the state. So this is act, these are actually aerial surveillance photos taken of the march participants as they are leaving uh, St. Jude on the outskirts of Montgomery and headed into uh, downtown uh, Montgomery to end the march at the state capitol. And we have one of these blown up in massive format in our digitization lab. And it's one of my favorite photographs in the building because you can see this long line of marchers and it just gives you a sense of the scale of the march by the time it ended in Montgomery, uh, working their way through all these neighborhoods uh, to eventually reach the state capitol. And it was create its purpose of creation was to monitor and to, uh, like I said, surveil what was happening, but it becomes this such a valuable and precious uh, visual record of the power of the movement and the power of those people who had made that journey and were coming together and working their way up to the stage to hear uh, Martin Luther King give his uh, moral arc of the universe speech. So another example is uh, from the same event and, and a good example that I hope your listeners will take to heart. Uh, occasionally, we come across things in estate sales or on eBay. Uh, and uh, several years ago, we were contacted by someone who had bought a collection of slides at an estate sale in Texas. And it turned out to be um, 16 images. They weren't e 16 negatives. They weren't even a full roll of film that a Lutheran minister had taken who had come to Alabama to participate in the Selma to Montgomery March. And they have some of the most beautiful color, color photographs of the last leg of the march. And so this is a, a gentleman who's there for peaceful purposes, there to support the movement and taking photos of local African-Americans who were there to demonstrate and to defend their rights as, as citizens. And they're just 
Unfortunately, we don't know who this man was because the donor had, you know, picked them up like we all do. You go to a, a garage sale or an estate sale and didn't really know much about who had created them. Uh, found these in a box that was purchased and then realized their historical significance and called us. And so we're so grateful to have them. The lesson is that you never know what's in uh, your family's attic or uh, that you might come across at an estate sale or somewhere else. And if you, if you do find those things, you know, learn what you can about who created them. And then if you're so inclined, you know, find a repository that can make, uh, provide a permanent home for those and help to make them available to a broader public. I love that. Love those stories. And of course, as someone who worked at archives and libraries near and dear to my heart, um, I want to be cognizant of time because it's already 1050 here on the East Coast. You guys are on central time and you're being very gracious with your time tonight. But um, if you're up for it, maybe we could invite a few questions from the audience and see if people have any thoughts or reflections or questions that they want to ask you both or participate in the conversation in some way. And we can take a few questions and then we can find a way to wrap up the evening, if that sounds uh, good to both of you, Steve and Martha. Sounds good. That's fine. I, I just want to add something. I was pondering whether oh, or yes. not I would Please. share it. But uh, I was doing some some research on the Selma to Montgomery march, and I went to the Alabama Department, Highway Department, and found, you know, images of the last leg of the march and finding images of Viola Luzzo, the uh, Detroit housewife who was killed at the end of the march. I, it was just staggering. There were so many pictures of this lady, and then the next thing I know, I'm looking at this lady in the same dress as how I recognized her uh, in her car after she had been assassinated. That was just unbelievable. So as you pointed out, the idea of interrogation of, of images and looking at what they mean, that one about just watching her, you know, her face, she, you know, she's so happy as she's marching along, and then you know, a few photographs later, there she is in her car, just shot down. It was just unbelievable. So th these images are available. And for history students, I really hope that you all will take advantage of all of the amazing things that Steve has to offer. And then also know that there are other places where these images can be found. If you're interested, particularly about the civil rights movement in Alabama, even places like the Alabama Highway Park. Yeah, that's real. I'm glad you shared that. Thank you. That's it's, it's a chilling, chilling story. And again, the power of the photograph. Um, all right. Uh, well, uh, I've got the hand raising queue open now. I had turned it off while we were just having a conversation here on stage. But if uh, for those of you who are in the audience and who have been listening in, if you want to ask a question to Steve or Martha, now's your chance. You can talk about a question about the movement itself or a question about resources and photographs and how those two come together. If you have any questions, now would be a great time to do it. Let me also just reset the room really quickly uh, because we are approaching the top of the hour. Uh, again, this is History Club. Uh, we meet Thursdays here on Clubhouse. We used to meet every week, but uh, just because of other things going on in life and in the world, we've kind of scaled it back for now to once a month. And uh, we are in the middle of a wonderful partnership with Flipboard, looking at this intersection between photography and history. 
Last month we looked at photography and the Holocaust. Uh, this month we're looking at photography and the Civil Rights Movement. And next month we'll be looking at photography and the women's suffrage movement. So if you're interested in these types of conversations and these subjects, uh, please do sign up for the History Club newsletter, which is uh, the pinned link right above my head. Uh, is on that newsletter that we share information about upcoming events. And we also share out links to the projects like Dr. Boyer's and like Steve Murray's where you can access these amazing collections and learn more about this history. Again, there's, you know, we, we tend to see the same pictures over and over again in our textbooks or in our media or on our social media, but there's a whole universe of content out there to learn about and to discover. And uh, these are two great resources um, to, uh, to explore those types of collections. Um, I know we had a few hands raised earlier, but I actually don't see any hands raised now, which means uh, either one of two things. One, we've just sort of amazed people so much that they're just kind of processing all the information or that it's getting late here on the East Coast and other parts of the United States and uh, people want to take some time after this conversation to go and do some research and look at all these wonderful collections uh, that you've highlighted for us today. So. Um, I think it's perfectly reasonable to wrap this up in about an hour because um, that's a fair amount of time both for this and as a podcast to be distributed later. So Martha and Steve, why don't I just ask you guys each a final question and then we can wrap it up for the evening and continue the conversation in the newsletter and in other ways. Um, Steve, let me start with you. Um, I'm wondering if you could then, we've talked about the past, we've talked about the present, let's talk a little bit about the future as we wrap up here. Um, we kind of alluded to this, but in this visual age where we're always on screens, we're always on our phones, uh, we're always looking at pictures bombarding us every day. Um, as you think about the future of civil rights education and the future of preserving these photograph collections, um, how is your department and your agency uh, grappling with this constant demand for visual media and uh, the role it's going to play in education about these types of things moving forward? Uh, great question, Jason. You touched on one of the answers already and it's resource uh, allocation and being sure that we've got the resources we need to uh, keep the pipeline flowing, so to speak, of new content coming online, but then being able to uh, preserve that in perpetuity. So there's storage costs, um, there are you know security requirements to be sure that we protect the data. So that's a big concern of ours to be sure that we've got the ability to do that long term. But I think also we I think we we know that there's more story to tell about the civil rights movement through through imagery and photography. I think that one of the questions that we spend a lot of time discussing now is um, what's next. What what are what are the next uh, sets of images that we need to be sure that we're capturing? And so that's everything from the experience of the pandemic, the way that we've all dealt with that in the last couple of years, to ongoing issues of social justice. Um, related to the, the protests after George Floyd's murder, murder, for example. We have another uh, a photographer who's donated some great collections to us related to the campaign for same-sex marriage rights and LGBTQ rights in the Deep South. So there's always more history to tell. Some of it is unfolding before our eyes. 
and even the ominous news from you know Eastern Europe is going to challenge us and provide lots of teaching opportunities today and well into the future and thinking about how we process information and how we use that to better effectively teach about uh, historical forces that have uh, a nagging way of coming around and intruding into our present again over and over. Yeah, for sure. I've been thinking a lot about that the last couple of days as well. Um, Martha, why don't I give you the last word? And I'm wondering too, if I can spin this a little bit towards the future and I'll, I'll pose it to you this way, but you can take it any number of directions. You know, last month when we talked about the Holocaust, we talked about the fact that uh, we're approaching a time where there won't be any Holocaust survivors left to tell the story of the Holocaust in the first person. And just how critical then the photographs and the videos and the testimonies will be to the next generation coming up to learn about these events. I wonder if that's something that you and your colleagues also think about in context of the civil rights movement. Obviously, we're not quite there yet, but there will come a day that we are. And how do we set up future generations for learning and having the resources that they'll need to understand what happened? Jason, uh, you're so very right. Um, just Sunday, I saw a veteran of the movement who was really, uh, he refers to himself as a lieutenant, and he's 89 years old. All of those people who were like on the, the front, those leaders then, uh, like right now, I know maybe there's one left. There are a lot of people in their 60s and 70s, and some of these are people that I use to help tell the story. So I think our great hope right now, again, is the schoolhouse. It's the great equalizer. And if we want to maintain and keep this history alive, which is what why I do what I do, I want teachers to come. I want them to learn about this history, about the people, and how they have to make the promises of the Constitution and the Declaration of, of Independence a greater reality for more Americans. So I, I find myself really and truly just trying, you know, to, to do more, to share more, to bring more people to Alabama to make sure that this story is not lost. I'm also concerned, uh, it's not lost, I'm also concerned about this whole idea of critical race theory. And when people ask me about that, I just, well, I teach history. And, you know, this is history. I'm not trying to make anybody out to be uh, any worse than they were, I'm teaching history. So if we can get our, 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 our people, our, our, the people in the history club, just to stand up for history and to teach it with, with passion and with commitment, I think we'll do a great job. But we need to start preserving these stories. So some of the things we're doing here in Birmingham is that we're actually videotaping people and getting their stories online so that we can share them with the future generation. And I'm so thankful for Steve and all the other departments of archives and history. He didn't say, but Alabama had the first state archives in the entire nation. And if, if more people would do what, what Steve is doing there, and he's made an amazing difference since he's been in his position, I, I think we can have hope that this history will be taught and that we won't go back and make those same mistakes because we've got teachers on the front line not afraid to tell the truth. Thank you. Well, that was wonderfully eloquent and beautifully said. So I think that that caps it right there. Thank you for that. And thank you guys both for being here. I know that it's 
you know, it's late in the evening and you're both incredibly busy people. But the fact that you spent, you know, spent time with us tonight in History Club to talk about this, uh, we're so grateful. We had about, uh, let's see, 1,800 people come through the room tonight, 118 of you still here right now. Um, so if you do want to help preserve history, if you do believe that these types of things are important, I would encourage you to do a couple things. One, I'd encourage you to get in touch with Martha and Steve and talk about uh, how there might be ways to work with their collections or what they're doing or support what they're doing. I would also encourage you to uh, stay in touch with the History Club. The link to our newsletter is above my head, so please do sign up for the newsletter. If uh, all 118 people in this room right now signed up for the newsletter, that'd be amazing because then you could get access to these types of resources and find out about future conversations that we're going to have on these important subjects. And I would also uh, invite you to learn more about Flipboard, who sponsored this conversation tonight. And I've just been incredibly impressed with the Flipboard team and their commitment to these issues. You know, it's, um, it's not always easy uh, to um, come into these types of partnerships in, in new spaces like Clubhouse, um, but they have believed in this type of content. Uh, they believe that this type of mission is important to educate people and to document history and to tell people about it. And they've just been incredibly gracious in sponsoring this conversation. And I've really enjoyed using the platform as a creator. And so I'm excited uh, for the storyboard I made on civil rights. And I'm excited to make the next storyboard on women's suffrage movement uh, next month. So uh, with that, uh, let me thank all of you who came tonight to listen to this conversation. Uh, let me thank you, Martha, and you, Steve, for being so gracious with your time. And we will wrap it up here. And um, I guess the last thing I just want to know is, Martha and Steve, when can I get down to Alabama to see you guys? You're welcome anytime, Jason. Uh, uh, come see us whenever you can, and we'll uh, get together. I just want to say thank you so much, Jason, for this opportunity and this platform. Uh, I'm just blessed to have been here. I didn't know about History Club before talking with you, and just thank you so much. And the Stony Project this year will run July the 10th through the 30th. Come on down. I look forward to meeting you. Amazing. Let's all go. History Club field trip down to Alabama. I love it. Martha, it was so um, fun to be with you, and I, I appreciate you so much. Well, thank you, Steve. It's, it's mutual. It's, I, I really, all of you, thank you so much. And all the people in the audience, I'm just amazed at all of you. I'm just so thankful you have no idea. Thank you all so much. Thanks, Jason. Thank you, guys. Have a wonderful night, and we will talk soon. I'll end the room now. Thanks, everyone. Good night. Good night.